It's another edition of the Talking Heads Podcast here on this Sunday, May the 29th. Hope everybody's doing well. Happy Memorial Day weekend. Uh, thank you to those who have provided service, who have done service for our country. We wouldn't be able to talk about frivolity like Mets baseball and baseball and sports in general without your great work. And, uh, and I don't know how many people are listening overseas. I know we have some overseas uh, listens because I do get a breakdown. So if you're on the service listening overseas, hopefully this gets your mind off of things for a couple of minutes. You have more important things on your mind. But anyway, uh, a lot to talk about. I think we have a terrific show ahead of us. First, a former Met member of the 86 team was not at the celebration. It was erroneous. He was invited. He just couldn't make it. He'll talk about it. Had a chance to catch up with Doug Sisk early in the week. Doug has been a, a good friend of mine. He's been on my ESPN show back in the day. I had him on the podcast, the NY Baseball Digest podcast back in the day. And he's an interesting, um, an interesting person to talk to. Sometimes the guys who played bit parts or maybe watched more on these historic teams are um, – are fun to talk to. So Doug will join me. Mike Vicaro, the New York Post, will also join me. He's had a couple of great columns about Game 6 of the 1986 NLCS. He talked about uh, earlier today regarding the 86 season and how the Mets overshadow a lot of other great teams that were in this town during that time. Look, we're going to get into the Noah Syndergaard, Chase Utley stuff. We're going to get into the Matt Harvey stuff. It's going to be there. But this show originally was going to be a lot more about 86, and maybe dabble a little bit in about the current team. So Bakara will come in. He'll talk to me about that. We also will hear – this is a really long show, I know, but I, 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 people are telling me they like it. So I'm trying to give them the content uh, from a member of the MetsBarnesOnline.com community. Chris, uh, I'm trying to get to the point where I can't take calls yet. We're trying to get the opinions of the community here. We've done like comment section, and, and we had Tim Donner on last week. So I'm going to try to get somebody from the community to make, not speak for the community, but give the community's point of view because that's what the fans want to hear. The fans want to hear what's also going on with the fans. What's the fans' point of view in addition to the player point of view and, and, and the journalist media point of view. So we got that. Of course, if you want to interact with me at Mike Silva Media on Twitter, you could go to the Talking Mets link and you can get the show all the time at MetsMarizedOnline.com. It's on SoundCloud. It's on Blog Talk Radio. It's on iTunes. It's everywhere. Stitcher. If you want to listen to this show and you want to put the effort into it, you can certainly find it. There's, no, there's nothing there. Look, I'm not going to get into a long intro because it's important for me to get to the content. That's what you guys want to hear. But here's something real quick about what happened last night before we get into the 86 stuff and everything. Great ceremony, by the way. Great celebration. I don't want you guys to blame Chase Utley. I don't want you to blame the umpire yesterday. I don't want you to even get mad at Noah Syndergaard. To me, what you saw last night was a sickness of a bigger problem, and that's the MLB bureaucracy that started pretty much under Bud Selig. The committees – I mean Major League Baseball is essentially a Washington think tank the way they go about things. Let's start with Joe Torre, and Joe Torre, I know everybody loves Joe. I, I looked up what his actual title is, Vice President for Baseball Operations was his original title. Now he's the chief baseball officer, which I guess is essentially a CEO. I've always thought Joe Torre's a phony ever since the Clemens Piazza incident. The same guy that got all heated about Pedro Martinez throwing at his team all of a sudden played the who, me? The dumb act when Clemens tried to cuss Piazza. That's old history. I'm not going to get into that. Joe Torre is the executive vice president for baseball operations. Joe Torre. Let me see. Oh, this is what at least Wikipedia says his responsibilities include. 
primary liaison for all baseball and on-field activities between the Office of the Commissioner and the general managers and field managers of all 30 Major League clubs. Other duties include overseeing areas of Major League operations, on-field operations, and discipline and umpiring. Guys, Torrey's not qualified to do this. Joe Torrey was a mediocre manager that was the perfect fit for a very veteran, very disciplined, very hard-nosed Yankees team. He's the perfect fit for that team. He wasn't a great fit for anybody else. Nice man, I'm sure. A guy that if you go out to a dinner, you want to hear stories. He shakes hands. He, he presents checks to the youth clubs. He's not a leader in the sense where he should be leading. The same kind of leadership that you see out of the NBA under you know, now uh, uh, Commissioner Silver and what Commissioner Stern gave, gave all the time. That's what you see in terms of discipline and refereeing and, and, and progressive uh, rule enforcement. The NBA is a good, in my opinion, a good blueprint, not what you see with Major League Baseball. Torrey is a symptom of a sickness that was created under basically Bud Selig, who was a do-nothing commissioner. Bud Selig was the main force behind illegal collusion back in the 80s. Everyone wants to put him in the Hall of Fame, but he was more creating a league that is a, basically a government bureaucracy and a good old boys network than you could ever see down in Washington. The fact that the Wilpons were able to keep the Mets is a great example of it. Look, you know, Joe Torrey, we could blame Joe Torrey. He was put in a position with his committee and his uh, involvement, which I, I really don't know if he's, in, uh, like I said, equipped to be in charge. Look at the home plate collision rule. It's a mess, all because Buster Posey got hurt. If it was Renee Rivera that got hurt back five years ago, nobody would have cared. When the Mets had Mike Piazza, who was their best hitter and one of the best hitters in the league, runners would barrel into him all the time. Nobody cared. Posey fundamentally made a mistake at the plate, exposed himself, and then the rule changes because all of a sudden the public outcry. Exactly what we do in politics. You know, we, we don't really enforce things until there's this one outlier, then all of a sudden it's an epidemic. Instant replay, which I support, but is a mess. Each team has a challenge per game. But at any point, an umpire can then say, oh, I'm going to go take a look at it. So this is not even like the NFL where you could, you know, you just have some strategy in it. What's the point of giving them the challenge if at any point they could take a look at it? So the umpiring has, in my opinion, been worse than ever because why do I need to be in position? Why do I need to, to make the right call? I could always say, hey, you know, let me go and take a look. It changes the game. It changes the subtleties of the game. I was watching A Year to Remember, the 86 Mets tape. I probably had four or five instances where today – the umpires would stop and say, we got to go take a look at that. I'm like, you know, that, and that would suck because it changed what was an exciting moment. Now you get to the Utley slide. And, you know, they should have went to the videotape back in October. If the rules were what they were today, I believe they could have. Similar to Posey, Tejada exposed himself to position. That's partially why he got hurt. Um, the neighborhood play was a problem for years, and the league created that. Um, but the level of incompetence on that play which is, should have been ruled double playing, could have cost them at the series, never was corrected. Baseball is the only sport where suspension of outlay for two games can't be done in an expeditious manner. I understand there's a CBA. But in the NBA, it was easy. The, Met, the Knicks came off the bench. There were suspensions back in 97. Derek Harper got in a fight. He was suspended for game five. The Phoenix Suns-San Antonio Spurs situation. Uh, what if Utley had gotten a hold of Familia's fastball in the in game five and hit that ball out that was well hit in the, in the ninth inning? He could have changed the series. It's so easy, but baseball is all about committees. I think the government moves faster than baseball. I think the government, and this is scary, is more efficient than baseball. This is the same sport that used the coin flip for your turn, my turn, to determine home field advantage for so many years. 
Bud Selig was on the radio with Frank, Mike Francesa and Bill Simmons, and he said the reason the All-Star game has to be used for home field advantage is because they need to book hotels. So maybe blaming Joe Torre is wrong, but he's the figurehead for everything that's wrong with this game. Everything is a reaction to a situation, an overreaction. And it's, to me, it's politically uh, uh, laced because, well, we don't want criticism. We want to sanitize the game. You don't need to sanitize the game. The fighting's done. The players rarely get into it. There's more fraternizing than ever. Players move around. They're friends. They don't want to fight. They don't want to lose money today's day and age. You know, kudos to Collins and Syndergaard because historically under this manager, the Mets really just take stuff, and they don't do anything. Syndergaard's tough. The Mets have some really tough guys on this roster. Not Harvey. He's fake. But they have some real tough guys on this roster. You need to have clear – baseball needs to have clear leadership roles. Hire a damn umpire to run the umpires. Yet the NBA has a former referee running it, and they are scrutinized. Believe me, I've heard interviews. I've read books. They have scrutinized. These guys are stressed. You know what? Maybe, maybe that's going on. I don't know because if there was any kind of clear direction, what happened last night would never have happened. Adam Hammerai took over and made the game about him, and like John Smoltz said, he could have if it was any other kind of team created more of an issue because you know what? If I was Logan Verrett, and you know, I would have probably just damn hit Hutley. If I uh, hit Hutley, if I was Robles with the bases loaded, I would have just jam- you know jammed the right in Hutley's ribs. Said, "Now you really want to." Throw me out? Here, throw me out. But again, that's what the fan, that's what the emotion of somebody who's not on the field is going to say. Just look at what the NBA does. They have a competition committee made of people that are actually still in the game. Baseball has Tory and Tony La Russa and Jimmy Leland. These guys are all great. None of these guys manage anymore. It seems more politics and perception than efficiency. It really does. So don't get mad at Utley. Don't get even mad at the umpire, uh, Adam Hammerai. Get mad at the system in the league. The league is more politics than good old boys. It was under Selig. It's continued like that on the Rob Manfred. There's no real management. There's real no good progressive ideas. All you're going to do is have situations put forth that address some kind of outrage at that time and play, and it's going to make things even more trickier, more bureaucratic, and a spider web of stupidity that we have. So you know, that's where I'm at. That's where I'm at with this whole thing. It's just so silly. It's, and that's not why the Mets lost last night. Mets lost because, you know what, whether Syndergaard was in or not, he would, have, he would have eventually come out in the eighth inning. Who knows what would have happened. Maybe the Mets bullpen would have imploded just as well. But at the, at the end of the day, you have a guy, Joe Torre, who just like Major League Baseball is a nice figurehead that could get committees together and everybody could discuss things. But I'll tell you what, nothing ever is going to be efficient and done, and your replay is a mess, home play collision is a mess, and now the umpiring is a mess. And all they have to do is look at some other sports. It's easy. When you have leadership, Things get done. Things get done efficiently, and actually the games have played well. Look at the NBA. I think they've played pretty well. There's always going to be controversy. There's always going to be an outlier, but there's going to be far less than what you have when you have 1,000 people with 1,000 opinions, and nobody really knows what the direction is. Anyway, let's get to the content. Let's get to the interviews. I'm going to take a quick break. When we return, Doug Sisk, former member of the 86 Mets, is going to share some memories. 86 weekend, great ceremony. Doug wasn't there. He was invited. He couldn't make it. He'll talk about that, get into his thoughts about the Mets, that team's run, how that team was built and grown, and, uh, and give some of his thoughts. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out on Twitter, at Mike Silva Media. Go to the Talking Mets link over at MetsBarsOnline.com. You can get on iTunes, SoundCloud, give you everything you need to need. We'll be back with Doug Sisk right after this. And the Mets are down to their last out. And Gary, the Red Sox are 
two strikes away. Line into left field, base hit for Carter, and the Mets are still alive. And that's going to be hit to center, base hit. And that's going to be hit into center field, base hit. Here comes Carter to score, and the time runners are The Mets refuse to go quietly. With two out, they come scrambling back with consecutive hits. And John McNamara goes to the mound. He wants Bob Stanley to pitch to Mookie and Wilson. The Talking Mets podcast here on MetsmerizeOnline.com. And joining me, a member of the 1986 Mets. He spent six years with the Mets. And I've spoken to him a few times. Always a gentleman. Had a chance to meet him a, a couple of times when he's been up in New York. Out on the West Coast, uh, member of that bullpen, Doug Sisk. Doug, Mike Silva here in New York. How you doing, my friend? Mike, I'm doing fine. What's, yeah, everything's good. So I know that you're not going to be heading out to New York um, for the celebration. <laughs> At the very least, are you maybe if this is one last time? Are you tired about talking about the '86 Mets and all this? Is it uh, is it getting old? Uh, I know some of the fans were wondering, um, you know, what's going on and and why you couldn't make it out there. So give us an idea of what's going on with Doug Sisk, and and obviously we're going to be missing you this weekend. Well, no, not really. I mean, last week I was on vacation, actually down to Florida, and and uh, you know. Um, you know, I think that the fans, the fans are great. I mean, they're the best in, in all. And I think that, uh, you know, some of those guys don't make it. So be it. It's just nothing we can really do about it. I do work for a living. I mean, it's hard to say that. But back in the years of all all of us players playing, I mean, we, we do have to work. So uh, maybe my my uh, people that are at work aren't, aren't too excited about me taking off uh, more time. But, no, I do, I do wish the people of New York and, and the celebration and all that, it goes on. I think it's, it's a great thing. And, and uh, you know, good grief. I hope the Mets win someday, too. Some they go through the same situation we went through. I got with me Doug Sisk, member of the 1986 Mets. You know, Doug, everybody talks about 1986, and we could sit here and wax poetic about it. But the way I look at it, a lot of what happened in 1986, almost the foundation – or a lot of it was built up in 1985, a tough uh, end-of-the-season loss to the Cardinals. You were a mm-hmm. part of it. I know you struggled a little bit that year. You had a lot of good years with the mm-hmm. Mets. That wasn't one of them. I know you had some, some injuries that year. Was 85 almost like that springboard because you guys felt you should have won? I think so, too. I think in 1984 we should have won. Um, all, we had some young players. Things were starting to happen. I mean, we got to keep them in. This is 1983, obviously. Uh, Gary Carter was coming into the picture at some point, and I mean it was it was a magical. I think I think we had a great opportunity at that point, and um, for me that year I had you know I just wasn't pitching well. Things weren't quite right, and 
I could put my finger on it. And as the season went on, and you know, I had all the the harassment of the fans, and you know, I can understand that. I mean, good grief, it's, you know, you're you're in the heart of of everything, and and uh, you know, heads are going to roll. I mean, they have a lot to do with what decisions are made at the at the at the you know at the major office situation. And and finally, I mean, at, at the end of the season, uh, when we were right there with the St. Louis Cardinals. I pitched in a couple games, pitched well, and all of a sudden, man, I, I went into one game and I just couldn't get my arm out of the jacket, and it was bone chips. They had locked in, and uh, eventually I had bone surgery. I had surgery in my elbow at, at the later part of the season, after the season. But, but yeah, I mean, uh, there was some expectations in 1985, but I think 1984 we had a good club. Doug, as you went into 86, and I know it's always well-documented mm-hmm. that Davey said you guys were going to win, you're going to dominate – and everybody points to that early season series against the Cardinals where you guys swept, yeah. I believe it was a four-game series. Now, a 162-game season, is it possible, as good as you guys were, was that series a little overrated from what everyone looks back, or was it that big for you guys at that point of the season? Well, I mean, you look at look at right now with all the media and all the, the technology that's out there. I mean, everybody has got information on everything that goes on everywhere. And um, at that point, um, I, I think it was really kind of kind of far reach to be able to get into that situation and say, God, you know, these guys win this thing, it's over. But we were, you know, we were right, we did, and eventually we ended up clinching this thing in the first week of August, sem- well, September, I think. And uh, that hasn't been done in a long, long time. But we were a team that a lot of guys, everybody knew. We all, we all, we all knew at some point that. No matter what happened, we were going to win some ball games, and it just went on down the line. We had a fantastic group of guys, guys that could could do whatever needed to be done to win the ball game. And there's there's teams that like the Toronto, the Montreal Expos back in the '80s, that had some great players, but they just couldn't put it together to win, some, you know, get to the playoffs. We were that team, and I think as we got into the playoffs in the World Series, we were looked at as the one to win the thing, and I think that's why the the Boston Red Sox really didn't like us because we were favors and, you know, they, they ended up uh, battling us really hard and they were a good club as well. Before we talk about the postseason, what memory for you personally, taking out the Houston series, taking out the, the Boston series, mm-hmm. did you have a memory from that season that you were involved in that stands out for you that you always think about when, you know, someone brings up 86 Mets, something personal to Doug Sisk? 1986? Um, yep. You know, I think I think the most point of the matter is you know I had some great years at the Mets in my career, and then you know it's basically we got in 1986 and we had some great players and it's just time to step back and watch it. I mean it really was it was a, an incredible thing to watch and I I don't know if fans in New York realize and some of these people are probably a lot younger and probably didn't realize back then and I, maybe they're tired of listening to it but this was a, a great team of a hodgepodge of a bunch of guys that were different. We were all different, and we weren't afraid to say it. We weren't afraid to do it, and uh, certainly we had some, some stuff off field and on field. And uh, but you, the bottom line is, <laughs> we 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 were good, and all of us were good, and we all fed off of it. And for me personally, um, I was um, I was just glad to be a part of it. I mean, the Mets in 1985 had a tough season, and and I, I probably shouldn't have. I've been through it that when I had the surgery and all, and, and the Mets really helped me, and and I got the opportunity to, to pitch in 1986, and I was lucky enough to have a 
a daughter born during that season. There was like three of us that did, me, Jesse, and, and Timmy Tuffle. And it was a special year for all of us. So I would say probably my daughter being born in 1986 and being a part of the whole thing. That's pretty cool. Uh, I have with me former Mets pitcher Doug Sisk. Hey, did they overrate the partying? I know they they, they claim you were part yeah. of a group called the Scum Bunch with uh, Danny Heap yeah. and uh, Jesse Orozco. Look, I, I, these days you don't know what's real and what's imagined. You know, yeah. there's been talk about Kevin Mitchell and cats, and 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 everybody's got a different story of what's real and what's not. But can you set the record straight for us, Doug? I mean, come on, are, I, are, are, I, are they? <laughs> I knew you were going to do this. No, I, I had know, to, actually, Doug. I know. <laughs> God damn it. But no, you know what? We were no different than anybody else right now. It's just that right now, I think with all the cell phones, all the multimedia and all that, I mean, you can't get away with anything. Back then, it's not that we tried to get away with anything or anything like that. It was just we were free-spirited. We did what it took to win the game on and off the field. If we needed to be prepared whatever way it was, everybody was different. We had guys who would drink some beer in the front of the plane. We had guys that would drink this or have fun. And the other guys were playing Trivial Pursuit. In the middle of the plane, everybody was different, and they all respected what we did. But there was never one time where none of us ever focused on the game of baseball. And Davey will tell you that 100%. Doug, there is one memory I have of you, and I, if I'm wrong, correct mm-hmm. me, but weren't you on the mound in San Diego when it was the double play where Dykstra threw yeah. the runner out at home, and then it was that, Ed Hearn, I believe, that threw out. Um, but Hojo was the third baseman. I think it was through Flannery out at third. Was that you on the mound? No, it, it was me, but it was John Gibbons. John Gibbons. And John was Johnny Gibbons. And in that particular game, um, I'm trying to remember, I had given up a base hit. A guy tried to score, threw him out at home plate, and then another base hit, and a guy tried to go, and they got him out, and they ended the game. It basically ended the game. And, and at that point, it had gone extra innings, I think, and – we were scheduled to fly out of San Diego, and we could not fly out of San Diego because uh the lateness. So we had to drive all the way to Orange County, all the way up to get on that plane to fly back. It was one heck of a ball game, and uh, yeah, you're you're correct. It was uh, yeah, I was a part of that. And you know, a lot of people talk talk about Game Six of the '86 World Series, but. And I was listening to a bunch of your former teammates in interviews, but everybody glazes over that Houston series. Now, I know you didn't pitch a ton in the Houston series. Um, yeah. You sure as heck, I believe, warmed up a lot in that game six in, uh, yeah. in Houston. But uh, that was a tough Astros team. Talk, talk about that because did you guys overlook the Astros a little bit, or were you were you ready for what was coming at you? Because I think a lot of people don't realize how good that pitching staff was and how well mm-hmm. aligned they were. Uh, they almost were a lot like you guys, even though they didn't win quite as many games during the regular season. I think the Houston, the Houston, the Houston Astros had a great club. And, again, they were a hungry club. Remember, um, we had won our division by quite a bit, and these guys have been scrapping to get to where they were. And then we go in there and we play them. And um, you're right, I had warmed up a lot. And I, I don't know if it was a deterrent or a right-hander or a left-hander or whatever it was. But, but yeah, I mean, ultimately it came down to Roger McDowell and Jeff Roscoe. I mean, those guys – went out and fixed the butt, and they did what they needed to do. And, and, I, and I'm going to tell you what, it's been 30 years, and I still look back thinking if I would have had to face my – was it Davis, the big first base where they would have had, what I would have done mm-hmm. in this. I mean, people in New York don't realize that we continually think about the way this thing went down. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, an easy thing. It wasn't that. And then, of course, you know, we left um, Houston and went back, and that was one of those – 
airplane flight that uh, we had our, our family on because they couldn't get up because of the lateness of the flight, and, and I think you know about that. But, um, yeah, I, I think the Houston Astros had a wonderful club, and uh, they were scrappy. They had a lot of guys that could run. They had a lot of guys between the bat, make contact. They had a lot of guys that could strike out. And uh, Mike Scott was having a great series, and uh, uh, you know, we were very fortunate to win that thing. Tough place to play the Astrodome, too. You guys never played well mm-hmm. there. You know, the, it, mm-hmm. it, it was a football stadium. I know that they've, uh, you know, they're pretty much condemned it at this point, but um, uh-huh. not a great place to play. And what was it? Was it really just the Astros, or was it just something about that place that just you guys always – it always was a thorn in your side, no matter what season you guys were in? Well, I think I think a lot to do back then was the fact that baseball stadiums were built, and then when those were built, the the, the the, the, the teams were built around them. The Houston Astros were were, were part of their club as, as as the field as long as as much as the St. Louis Cardinals were the Astros were field. I mean, these guys were contact guys; didn't strike out much. Um, and, and you know, a lot a lot of people probably realize that, but um, uh, the Astrodome was built below sea level, so um, the ball didn't carry well there. So they built their club accordingly. We were built. Um, similar to that, very similar to that. Guys that could swing it, guys that could run it. We had taller pitchers, guys that could throw off the mound. Their mound was high. So it really adapted to us towards the later part of uh, the times we were there in, in Houston. I didn't much care pitching in Houston myself. I didn't, you know, I mean, there's parts that everybody likes to pitch in. I love to pitch at Shea. I really did. And I love to pitch in, in uh, uh, Los Angeles, San Diego. I mean, a lot of these clubs you know, which places I enjoyed pitching in, but that was one particular place. I thought that we were pretty uh, geared. We're pretty, we're pretty much matched up with the St. Louis Cardinals. I thought. I'm not the St. Louis Cardinals, but Houston Astros. Do you have any uh, scuff baseballs all these years later from Mike Scott? Was he scuffing the baseball, no. Doug? Could we get the right here? I know our guys were looking. I never saw any of them. You know, originally Mike Scott was with the New York Mets. And you guys know that. Sure. And and he was yep. traded for Danny Heap. And at that point, Mike Scott was a he threw hard. He was a good ball player. And it was just one of those things that they felt that an opportunity to get Danny Heap and you know give Mike Scott a, a a fresh look at from another organization, and it worked out for him. I mean, he threw hard, and uh, you know his 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 situation just grew. I mean, he just he just got better and better and better. And you know how it is in the playoffs. I mean, you only need a couple good pitchers for the starting rotation, and it'll carry you. And he was another guy we just didn't want to face. Right. Put a lot of pressure there in that game six. I have with me Doug Sisk, former Mets pitcher Correct. on the 86 team. A um, couple of questions here. I know uh, he's got to run, but we appreciate some time with him. Uh, what a lot of people don't realize, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, if my memory uh-huh. does not serve me correctly, you were warming up. So if the ball doesn't go through Buckner's legs, and the game remains remains tied. Doug Sis comes in, and you're going to be facing the Red Sox in a tie game in Game Six of the World Series. Yeah, you know what? I I look at this a lot, and um, you know, it's it, it's amazing to look at it as a, as a as a player that played, and then the opportunity that he could have had, or what would have happened. I looked at it as an opportunity. I didn't look at it as being scared. Um, uh, it, to me. Um, uh, we, we were we were a good club. We were we were we were going to win, and, and we thought we were going to win. And I I was up for the challenge. I mean, 
um, there were many times that I warmed up in the bullpen not knowing I was going to be in a game or not be in a game. In the early 80s, I mean, I was warming up in the bullpen in 1983, and I didn't realize I was going to be in a game opening day in 1983, and by God, I'm not in there right after Tom Cleaver. And now if they had told me prior to that game that I was going to be in that game, I would have probably, uh, you know, soiled myself. But I know, so you never really know. But looking back 30 years, you know, if you look at if you look at the, the situation, people paying attention to baseball. We look at this stuff. We all do. All of us are, are smart. We all pay attention, and what we would have done. We're not weird, but we we do we do pay attention. And I think it's part of the game. I mean, part of the game back then is is looking at a guy that. Uh, if you don't remember what he hits or what he doesn't, he's never been in the game for that much longer. So I do, but I'm glad it worked out the way he did. You know what I thought is that it's got to be spe- – it's special for the whole team to win, but guys like you, Mookie, uh, Jesse, that you guys were there when the Mets were really bad, especially Mookie. Mookie uh-huh. was there when, when the Mets were irrelevant. Yes, you came up as a young player. Uh, is there a little bit of a special feel for guys like you? Because you saw both ends of it. Uh, some of the guys were only there. They came up in the middle of it, guys like you know Dykstra. Uh, you could even throw Backman, and he was there when they were bad. Um, but the guys uh-huh. who were there when it's bad, they don't always get the opportunity to stick around when it's good. You know, There's bridge guys, but you, all you guys, you stuck around. You weren't a bridge guy. You weren't just passing through as they rebuild. You were there for the whole thing. It's got to feel special when it's all said and done that you saw it through from when it was nothing to the, to the, to the, the absolute peak. You know, I thank you for that. Um, I don't look at it that way. I, I look at um, everybody that played in the early 80s as a building stone to bring in the players that that were going to be better. And if I needed to get better, I needed to get better. I mean, you got Mookie out there who is this great guy, great guy. In fact, his book came out. I don't know if you have a chance to read it. Outstanding. And, and, and then all of a sudden, Lenny props up. And it makes it makes Mookie a better ball player. Mookie didn't walk much. He was a free swinger. It helped him. You know, I got Roger McDowell that comes in. Outstanding. Great athlete. Plays, plays ball. You know, it makes me better. Um, I think I think at that point, we just, the organization was giving some great players, and I give them that 100% uh, credit for the fact that the minor league system, we were voted probably four or five years straight as a top minor league organization in all of baseball. We were developing players left and right. Dave Hagen and we were bringing him in. He could have very well played third day. I'm not, not thinking any way in Ray Knight. Howard Johnson. I mean, we had used uh, 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 um, uh, oh God, the right-handed pitcher that we had, uh, uh, Walt Terrell, uh, in a trade to Detroit to get him. So things were really falling in place. And, and I, and I always wish that, you know, maybe at some point in 1984 or 1983 when, when we were, you know, me and whatever was doing well, you know, that that would have been the time where we had gone to the World Series. You just can't look at that. It was just the way that it went, and I'm glad that it went that way and uh, good for the Mets, and I hope that they, they get the opportunity to do the same thing that we did back in 1986. One one last thing before I let you go. The year yeah. after, and then I know you weren't there in 88, 89, 90, as, as uh-huh. things started to uh, – there was some disappointments and, and, and unfulfilled potential. But how hard was it for you guys? I know that you got unlucky with injuries in 87, um, uh-huh. and you had that Terry Pendleton game that McDowell gave up the home run that probably was the yeah. backbreaker. But 
How hard was it for you guys to repeat? Is there any perspective you can give about the year after? Because um, you know, in New York, we saw what the Yankees did with their '90s dynasty, and all you kept hearing was how hard it is to repeat and how hard it got every year they tried to repeat. Talk about your experience with that '87 club after '86 and, well, and the quest well, to try to bring well, it think, home again. I think the I think the '87 club we were as good. It's just that you know, I think we're going to try to remember right in spring training, Roger McDowell had come down with a hernia. So that kind of started things off a little bit. Um, the thing that really was, was just stands out in my mind about that, that club is, you know, anytime you're in baseball, you've got a, a, a small period of time to, to win it. You know, you got two or three years to, to win it. Uh, it's cyclic. And, and, and for us, we, we figured in 1987, same thing. All of us figured, hey, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna repeat. We've got great players. We're going to be there, the whole thing. And, and as it went down, I mean, um, it didn't happen. And then at the end of the season, I can remember all of us, I'm not going to repeat this on the air, but all of us were together at one point, Jesse, myself, Danny Heap, Gary Carter, all of us. And we're just sitting looking at this and saying, hey, you know, this is it. We're probably never going to see each other in a Mets uniform again. And, and um, you know, God dang, man, that's kind of sad. And, and the whole thing, and it really was, because we, indirectly we all knew that. And, and then they clean house, and it was a very sad thing for all of us. And but you know, we all talked together, and God knows we I miss Gary Carter as well as anybody does. And he was one of those guys that was was next to me in the locker room for all those years. I couldn't come sit in the stool because you know him and Dwight had started a game, and and uh, you know it, it was a very it was a very hard year uh, for me. And then. And I will say, in '87, I did it and asked for this to be traded, and, and I didn't do it in a in a brutal way. I basically set a time up to sit down with Frank Patrick, who you know, loved like like a brother. He was a good man, and uh, said, "Look, Frank, I said I think it's time." And his hands are on me. I said, it "Doesn't really make any difference how well I do or not anymore. Let's just if, 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 if you can come up with something, you know, that's going to make sense for the match." I said. Uh, we go for it, and he said, "No, Daddy, I'm not doing it." And eventually, you know, I was, a tr- I was traded in, in the early part of 1988. Um, now, everybody always says, "Hey, you want to go back to your your high school reunion and see all your people?" I don't. I these are guys. These guys we were in the trenches with for six, seven, eight years. You know, those are the guys. So it's it's, it's kind of hard at that point. Yep. And you guys miss Ray Knight in '87. I know Ray's been talking about. It. He's coming back to uh, uh, New York for an official uh-huh. event for the first time. That was a pretty big loss for you guys. I know Hojo had a great year, 30-30 year. Yeah. But did you guys miss Ray? Was that a, a key oh, component? That, I missed Ray. That I, I love point? that guy. I mean, he, he was, you know, there were times where I was struggling, and he was the first man of the dugout to come jump on me and, and give me a high five. Um, same with Gary. Gary Carter, same guy. I mean, when I was traded to the Baltimore Orioles and showed up in spring training, I walked into the into the into the clubhouse in Miami, and he's the first man standing to give me a big old hug. And it was in 10, 15 minutes later, I I see uh, Roland Heeman, the general manager of the uh, Baltimore Orioles, calling it out to be traded to the Detroit Tigers or or San Diego, whatever. Yeah, and I got God Almighty. I mean, we were a tight niche. I mean, everybody. Everybody loved everybody. We all fought amongst each other too because it was a check and balance. You know, there was a there was a fight on the field, and a second everybody was out there to, to brawl and to help. 
But, you know, everybody wanted a piece of what was going on in New York. I mean, we all did. And I, I, I kind of was kind of more laid back. I thought, you know, if you do well in the field, things will, will play out. Or unfortunately, you know, you know, there's only so much, so many bullets in your arm. And that's now with the end of it. So, but, uh, you know, I'll never be upset with the fans in New York, uh, being critical or whatever. I always know that they're going to know who I am because of, of, uh, of, of what I've been involved in. So, there you go, in a good way. So. Doug, you always are very kind and very generous your time with me. I appreciate you coming on. Uh, let's do it for the 40th. Maybe We'll certainly talk before the 40th anniversary. <laughs> and if the Mets – listen, I'll campaign. If the Mets get to the World Series again this year, maybe you could be thrown out the first pitch one of those games. You know, I'll Hernandez has done it. I, Strawberry's I, I, done it. We'll get you to throw one I really, out. I, I really like the organization. I think they're going in the right direction. they got some good arms and, and what have you, and – of course, things have changed a lot from the time we played them, but it's just still to the bottom line in New York. You know, so I hope they do, and I wish all of them uh, the best. And uh, probably not a lot of them even know who the heck I am, so that's fine. <laughs> Doug, you have a great rest of the night. Uh, thank you again, and uh, let's catch up. All right. Mike, thanks, man, for having me on your show, and you guys take care and hope the Mets win. And that's Doug Sisk. Former Met, member of the 8016, Doug says, great guy, great perspective. Had a chance to catch up with him earlier in the week. Uh, not done yet. Mike Vaccaro, the New York Post, will join me next. Mike wrote some good pieces, some great pieces, in my opinion, on Game 6 of the NLCS in 86. Uh, talked about the 86 season and that there are other great teams than just the Mets on that year. We'll talk about the Noah Syndergaard, Chase Utley situation. He had a lot to say about Matt Harvey earlier in the week. So, don't go anywhere. Mike Vaccaro, the New York Post, right after this. It's two and two. With two out, the tying run, Denny Walling at second base. The winning run at first base. Close. Breaking pitch hit right around the plate. And it's a full count. 3-2, Mike Scott, who watched the pitch of seventh game. Bob Nepper, who seemed to have this one in hand, wanted to have it get away from him in the ninth inning. 3-2 to bat. Struck him out! Kevin Bass swinging strikes on three breaking balls and the New York Mets have won the 1986 National League pennant. And Jesse Orozco becomes the first winner of three games in relief in postseason play. The losing pitcher will be Aurelio Lopez. Bob Nepper can only watch the Mets celebration in the center of the field when it seemed early on in the day that Bob was on his way to pitching a classic ball game. Masterful in performance for eight and a third innings. And then the sky fell, and the Mets tied at 3-3. And then they went ahead uh, uh, 5-4. And Houston came back in the 14th inning to tie, and uh, then the Mets came back to go ahead by winning the ball game with that three-run outburst in the top of this inning. So, the struggle is done.
Talking Mets podcast. I am joined by New York Post columnist Mike Vaccaro. You guys all know him. He's written some really great pieces looking back at uh, 1986. Uh, a lot to talk about. You never know what a uh, radio broadcast brings. And then you have uh, last night's Mets-Dodgers game. And Mike is with us. Mike, happy Memorial Day. How you doing? I'm doing fine, Mike. It's funny. We thought we agreed to talk before before the fun stuff happened. So I guess maybe we had seed uh, in our minds thinking there might be something that would happen in the meantime. I thought this would be a boring. Let's just look back at 86. But let's start <laughs> there because you wrote two um, two really good columns. The first one, uh, and I know you got some feedback in today's New York Post, was how you recaptured the city uh, during really what is interesting, a game that a book was written called The Greatest Game Ever back you know, 100 years ago, someone wrote a book, if I remember correctly. Game six. Sure, Jerry Eisenberg. Yes. A game that gets forgotten. Um, a game that, uh, you know, I was very young, so I watched it, but it's hard for me to really understand it because I was so young. I was only uh, nine years old. But you captured the city at a time before smartphones, before streams, before you really had access to whatever you wanted, as long as you had some kind of electronics device in your pocket. And I always envy Boston because they're always on the same page with their team. Right. Here, we have two of everything. But on that day, at least for that game, it seemed like we were like Boston, where everybody was watching the Mets and everyone was hoping the Mets, even though it wasn't an elimination game, were going to win that game and move on to the World Series. Yeah, absolutely true. And, you know, it's funny, the uh, the, the Mets road uniforms then only said Mets on them, but, you know, if they were the, the uniforms they had now, which say New York on them, would have been very appropriate because it was as if the, the entire city were, were rooting for, for New York. And, you know, forget about your, your local affiliation, whether you're a Mets fan, Yankees fan. I mean, you know, it's we tend to think, when we romanticize the 80s, we tend to think that it only belonged to the Mets when, in fact, the Yankees obviously had their own sizable uh, clientele, but it just, you know, it just, it, it just wasn't as loud as the Mets were for obvious reasons. But, uh, that yeah, that day you know it's funny you talk about how it gets overlooked and it does because look I mean the other game six in the World Series was in the World Series so that's going to be a bigger deal the way the Mets came back in that game obviously is is forever so uh, there are reasons why that game six when you say game six in New York that's the game that you generally conjure but you know it's if if you lived through and endured that other game six now, I was in college and, and it was a little different experience than what a lot of the people I had talked to. Uh, looking back at uh, 1986 was like, but uh, you know, I, I, I know I'd heard you know vaguely over the years that that's the way the city was. And when I started doing my research, it really was amazing uh, just what it was like. I mean, you know, you know, trains were going back to Westchester and Long Island to quarter fill because nobody wanted to leave the city. Because look, I mean, nowadays it wouldn't be a big deal because you could follow the game. You know, forget you know the, the game cast, and you could actually watch the game on your phone if you wanted to. So there's, you know, there's, that's not something that's ever going to happen again because if you care that much about the game, you're going to follow the game, and it's not going to impede your travel plans. But uh, you know, and what I found really interesting, Mike, is that you know I wrote that I wrote that piece. I had a bunch of anecdotes. And I could probably do a part two and a part three if I wanted to with all the responses I've got of people saying, well, this is what happened to me and this is where I was. And, you know, I had five different people, no, I mean, no kidding, five different people talk about how that very night uh, Billy Joel had a concert in the garden. You know, I guess and this is the more, the more things change, the more they stay the same. But he had a, a concert in the garden that night and he, 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 st- he opened up with uh, Take Me Out to the Ball Game. 
And so when five different people tell you the same story, you know, you tend to believe it's probably true. And that's the way it was. You know, the devils, the, the, the devils were playing the Canucks, and, you know, it was one of these things where, you know, the moment uh, Jesse Rasko gets strike three against Kevin Bass, the place went berserk. Whereas berserk is, you know, 8,000 people in a 20,000 seat arena can go. And these are all stories that you heard subsequently. So it's, it's amazing what a grip that one game had in the city. In a way, it's just not logistically feasible or possible for it to have. Again, you're just not going to have, you know, guys lining up 10 and 12 deep outside Crazy 80s, partly because there is no Crazy 80s anymore, but also because it's just not the way you have to do it anymore. You know, I mean, you actually can, in the subway, follow a game. And it's just uh, it's just different. But it was very cool. And, you know, you can just it, it really was kind of a slice in time. And, you know, it's funny. There were certain people who would write and say, I can't believe the entire city was, was, uh, was captured like that. And I understand that because in 2016, it's hard to imagine anything, you know, that, 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 that could be similar just because of the nature of the time and the way we are today. It's just it'll never have to happen again, you know, whether or not it actually could happen again. I have with me uh, New York Post columnist Mike Vaccaro. I am a little surprised how there was a lot of excitement for the 86 celebration. The place was packed yesterday. The players were into it. I not I know some of them have unfortunately passed on. Not right. everybody was there, but but the, but the guys were there. The the main guys were there. I was at the 2006 celebration. That was a great night. Uh, the Mets played the Rockies that night. I thought after that, for a while, people were kind of getting tired of the whole 86 thing. Mets were disappointing from 06 to 08. They became bad. They were in a rebuild. I'm a little surprised, but it seems like it conjured up the 10-year gap between 20-year anniversary, 30-year. The excitement's there. I wonder – if it'll be there 10 years from now, especially if the Mets don't win a title. Because I don't remember in 1999, and I remember 1999 vividly uh, as a baseball fan, I don't remember really mm-hmm. caring about the 69 Mets at all, to tell right. the truth. I was more worried about yeah. Robin Ventura and Mike Piazza at that time. <laughs> That's a great point. Um, I, I do think that those teams were different. I, I, I think that the 69 Mets captured kind of a mystical, ethereal type quality that I think that uh, you know probably was, was very much quaint and out of date by 99. And I think that the 86 team, you know, kind of, you know, speaks to, you know, what we want to believe ourselves in New York being bigger than life, louder than life. You know, and that's what that team was like. I'll say this. I think the Mets have had impeccable timing. I, I, I think that it was great that the 20th anniversary of that team came in, in 06 when, which is probably the last time, you know, at least until, you know, at least until Aaron Highland served that ball to Yadier Molina, was a feel-good season from start to finish. I mean, maybe that's just memory kind of frosting it, but, you know, I don't remember a lot of crisis of confidence among Mets fans at all in 2006. I mean, great start, big lead, it never was threatened, and, you know, so so, so when they when they celebrated the team later in the summer, it was almost like a part of their own feel-good you know, of that year. So it was kind of embracing the present with the past. And I, I think there's something of that now. I mean, look, I mean, the, 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 there's been, there, it's, it's already been, you know, a lot bumpier ride in 2016 for the Mets than it was in 2006. But, you know, it, it, you, say, you know, that said, when they had this thing yesterday, last night, the Mets were in first place. And so there's a feel-good element to that also. I think it would have been different. And like I, I don't even remember if they had a 25th anniversary celebration. But let's face it, if they had one of those in 2011, I don't know that the, that the mood of the Mets fan was going to be anywhere close to what it was like last night or anywhere close to where it was like in 2006. So in a lot of ways, they've been fortunate. Their anniversaries have fell in periods of prosperity. The interesting point by Ron Darling about how he and um, 
and Keith Hernandez, I guess, feel – and I, I've talked to some 86 guys who feel like the front office especially want mm-hmm. to distance themselves from 86. Or Darling used the term burden. He compared himself to the two guys up in the, the rafters on the Muppet show. <laughs> and I've talked to some current – not players on this team, but I've talked to t- players over the, you know, the, the last five years. And some of them will like roll their eyes when you bring up Hernandez and his commentary, and the fans love it. But I right. wonder, is this team a burden – uh, cause of the fact that this front office, after a while, you're like, I don't want to hear about 86. You know, does Noah Syndergaard care about 86? We know Matt Harvey probably doesn't, but I guess I could see that point of even though you could channel so much from that team, uh, even though it may be narrative laced, uh, to where you can learn lessons and this team could use a lot of or a little bit of that 86 uh, mojo. Yeah, you know, uh, here's what I'll say is that, you know, later in the summer, the Yankees are going to gather. They're going to celebrate their own anniversary, the 20th anniversary of 96. That'll be nice. And obviously there are a lot of fans who have, you know, very special and specific moments attached to that. But you know what? If they didn't have 96, then they would have 98, and they would have had 2000, they would have had 2009, they would have had 1961 and 1927 and 1953. And you know where I'm going with that is that it's a lot different experience. And I think the problem for the Mets is that they – you know, so much of who they are is wrapped up in that team. And it's interesting, you, you, you brought this up a little earlier, you, you don't have that kind of fanaticism attached to 69 uh, for whatever reason. I mean, I brought up a couple of major parts. I mean, I think that team is revered, but it's almost like, you know, it, it was a storybook season, and it's almost treated that way. It's almost treated like, like, like a fictional season in Mets history because it was so fairy tale. Uh, you know, 86 was so, was so much more visceral. So much more real. I mean, an epic six-game series followed by an epic seven-game series, whereas, you know, really, you think about the 69 Mets, I mean, they were as dominant as, as just about any team in postseason history. I mean, they, you know, they, 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 they played, uh, uh, what, eight games and they won seven of them. So, I mean, it's, it's a little different. And I think that, you know, I do think that – I've, I've heard Ronnie use that word burden a couple of times also. I do think that's part of it. I don't think that the current ownership is comfortable with the way that team was perceived as part of the reason why they – you know, certainly supervised or at least helped supervise the breakup event. You know, I mean, even as it was happening, it was obvious that Frank Cashin was uncomfortable with the fact that, you know, he wasn't just looked at as the general manager of the best team in baseball, but as some kind of traveling, you know, carnival. And that wasn't what an old school bow tie guy was kind of was going to be all about. And that really kind of reflects, I think, the 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 bullpen sensibilities, uh, for better or for worse. And I think that that's partly. You know, I, I do think there's been a reconciliation to that. I think, I think, I think finally the people who run the Mets understand just how much that '86 team means to their, you know, their their their, their fan base. Uh, most of them are still young enough to be able to appreciate it, and still young enough to be able to still buy tickets. And I think that makes a lot of difference, also. But I do think that, look, I mean, I think that sometime between now and the 40th reunion, it would behoove the Mets to be able to add another flag. So when the next time these guys gather. It's one of their championship teams getting together, as opposed to their, you know, their most, and in some ways their 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 only uh, important moment. I have with me Mike Vaccaro of the New York Post. One last point about '86 before I want to get to a couple things about the current team. An interesting uh, debate you brought up in a, in a column in the Post today about the Mets being are they the most uh, su- not successful but most popular uh, team from that year? The football giants. And football is the American pastime. Maybe because we're in New York, they're celebrated probably within the Giant fan. But you remember the 86, or the 86 Mets are more romanticized. And then you also brought up in the piece, and I can tell you, I've looked at some numbers. 
the Yankees get knocked for the 80s, and George did a lot of wacky things, especially towards the latter part of the decade. But from sure. 85 to 88, um, those were some decent teams. Bad pitching, decent offensive teams, maybe a little unlucky because when you look at the Red Sox, especially in 86, they were built similarly to the Yankees where their pitching was eh, outside of Clemens and Hurst, but they had a powerful offense. So it's almost like there's a lot of other subplots in the sports world of New York that get forgotten because the 86 Mets, because probably because of their personality. Yeah, that, I mean, they, they, they were bigger than life and that and, you know, and louder, like you said earlier. And, that, and that, that, I think that's part of why they, you know, maintain such a, an imprint and why we tend to associate 86 mostly with them. Uh, and that's fine. And, and the thing of it is, look, I mean, they did win a championship all in their, that, that one calendar year. You know, technically the Giants, you know, they, they, they won 14 out of 16 regular season games in dominant fashion, but they won their championship in January of 87. I mean, and, and it, it shouldn't make a difference, but I think in some minds, you know, it's just it's a, it's a little different, a tick different, you know. Um, and, 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 yeah, I mean, look, I mean, obviously there are other teams, and the Knicks were probably were still pretty lousy in 1986, although they had Patrick Ewing. But yeah, it, 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 it wasn't like all nine teams had a bad year. But four of them, look, I think that we would all agree that the four biggies in New York are the two football teams and the two basketball teams. That's just because of, because of the nature of the sports and, and, and the way we care about them. And that was really, if you you know, if you look through the through, through their you know, almost 60 years of shared history, um, or 50, you know, however, however many you're talking about, going back to 62, that was really the one year where all four teams had really good years. I mean, we forget a little bit about the Yankees, like you said, but, you know, that first four in their lineup, I mean, you had, you know, I mean, think about the number next to Ricky Henderson's name in the story today, right? 28 home runs, 87 steals. That's, that's insane. And he was the third right. most dangerous. <laughs> you could argue he was the third best offensive player on the team. Um, the Jets were 10 and one. I mean, and not only were they 10 and one, but they were rolling. I mean, it was just, you know, 11 games into that season. I mean, you know, the Giants were were uh, were nine and two, and they were, you know, that, that was a nice story. But uh, but uh, the Jets were 10 and one, and and that was a team that really looked like it had everything going and in place to to win the Super Bowl. And then you know, a bunch of injuries came, you know, one on top of the other, and that, that you know, Kenny O'Brien, who had been an MVP candidate, suddenly you know lost his job and. You know, all that culminates with that awful, you know, Mark Gaston on third and seventeen roughing the passer penalty. So, um, it, it's it's uh, you know, it, but 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 there was a moment in time, and it wasn't that far after the Mets won the World Series, when the Mets are World Series champions, the, the Jets are ten and one, the, the Giants are nine and two, and you really had a, an idea that my God, do we have a Subway Super Bowl? <laughs> you know, which yep. you know seems 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 you know in retrospect seems kind of funny, but. And that's what it was. And like I said, I mean, and the Yankees won 90 games. It was the third most American league by any measure in a wild card setup. They would have been in the playoffs. And then when you're in the playoffs, you know, who knows? So uh, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's always fascinating to me because, like I said, obviously the premise of the piece is that, you know, the Mets kind of gets 1986 as theirs and theirs alone when, in fact, it was as great a, a year to be a New York sports fan as any, you know. And the Rangers had a good year, had, had a good run that year. And, you know, the Knicks were terrible. They did have, you know, Ewing in, in, in place. And so, I mean, there was there was other things too, but but certainly of the four primary teams that we really, really care about, uh, uh, there's really never been another year quite like that one. I'm curious, uh, as we go to last night in this current team, everybody could get mad at Utley. Everybody could get mad at the home plate umpire. But here's how my take is. This is a, a, a symptom of a larger problem where baseball, everything from the home plate collision to the replay rule, uh, to even how the umpires and the umpiring has been pretty awful at times this year. Maybe that's because of the right. replay is all kind of scattered. And, you know, I know everyone loves Joe Torrey and I'm not saying it's all his fault, but 
all these committees that the commissioner's office have set up, why is it that the NBA could get somebody in a playoff game, do something wrong, and they could suspend them? I mean, everybody remembers Derek Harper getting suspended and the bench and the Knicks and the Suns. But baseball has to go on for months with an appeal process, not suspend the guy. Um, And then even with this umpiring situation, it seems like there's a lot of confusion about what an umpire can do, can't do. Uh, it's, and I got to think it goes back to almost the committee. It's, it's almost like a, a Washington think tank they have set up over there. And I almost feel like that's part of what you see on a field. Uh, so I'm taking a little bit of a different you know, position here because I can't get mad at Utley. I can't get mad at, at the Mets. This is just baseball, and I'm just confused about why it's, it's, it's almost like a spider web of, of stupidity from October all, all the way until now. It's funny, Mike. I was at that. I was at the game, and so I was. But I, I wasn't covering. I was with some friends, so I was in the stands, and so I got what you would, what you would probably classify as the ultimate visceral reaction from the people around me, and obviously nobody was happy. And I wasn't. I wasn't going to try and you know calmly explain all this to them because if I wouldn't, have, if I would have fallen on deaf ears. But I look at this the same way I look at. And you know, bear with me for the explanation. The same way I, I deal with the way pitchers are dealt with now. And that's, you know, look, you can rail and scream and, and and do everything you want, claim Don Drysdale and Bob Gibson and 195 pitches. It's not going to change. Baseball, in the way they approach pitchers, they're going to come out after 100, 105 pitches. That's the way it is, period. Now, you can yell about that and you can scream about that, and, 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 and the fact is you might be right. It might be wrong because we have no science to back any of that up. But that's how it is now. And so if you choose to yell at clouds, then you know you're going to go right ahead. I, I feel the same way with the way that the that the, 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 the you know the, the justice system, if you will, in baseball exists. Um, you know, this is how it is. The fact is, the umpire, for better or worse, has the it's within his purview to identify a purpose pitch and and eject anybody he wants for any reason he wants. Now that might be, you know, too far ranging in powers, but that's what he is, and that's exactly what the umpire in question did last night. For better or worse, um, it's it's just. I mean, I hate to say, I hate to use the old Belichick expression. It is what it is, but that is how the game is now. And look, I mean, if, if there's one thing that, I've, that, that that troubles me, and this is you know about the way this whole handle is that, you know, if you just take and put into a box the way things occurred at City Field on Saturday night, they differ so substantially from the from from, from the last incident of revenge, which was also a disturbed cold, the Rangers and the Blue Jays. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was handled so much differently. The pitcher wasn't thrown out. You, know, you basically wound up until you had a fist fight at second base. Um, so, I mean, that inconsistency bothers me, but the fact is that, you know, you can yell and scream about how things are in terms of and how they used to be in terms of exacting justice, but that's not going to uh, that's not going to affect anything. And look, I mean, to me, I, I always thought, I, I thought the Mets got the revenge they wanted by beating, by winning the series, by sending Chase Utley and the Dodgers home. Uh, in the same way, I thought that it was a little—I I, I don't want to say wrong—but it just—it it struck me. It struck a, a different chord in me that the that the uh, Rangers not only waited until the next year, but until the last game they played each other before they decided to to remind Jose Batista that they remembered that he flipped his bat. I thought it was again—I don't want to say lame—but you know, if you're going to do it at all in this year, then just do it the first time you see him in, in LA and be done with it. Um, and I just thought that I, I think if, I think in some ways the Mets part of themselves because they waited so long. So every day is a new thing. Well, is this a day? Is this a day? Is this a day? And uh, you know maybe a veteran umpire, you know, does what I think is probably I think we'll all agree the right thing, which is to warn them and then move on. 
but you know, he, he, it wasn't a veteran umpire. It was a rookie umpire, and you know, he was he reacted the way he did, and that's you know, that, those are all things you probably should have considered before you threw a ball behind Chase Up. Mike Vaccaro, the New York Post, joining me. Uh, one last thing before we wrap up. Matt Harvey uh, agreed with you earlier in the week in a column you wrote about Harvey and his lack of talking to the media. Got a lot of buzz. I mean, there's a lot of debate, especially from fans. It's almost like the fans like to take the opposite side versus the media. Yeah. Um, sure. Harvey – Harvey's interesting because I'm I'm worried that he's becoming for this team what Arod was for the Yankees, the 24 and one situation. Now I don't think that's going to derail them, but I think it's going to hurt Matt Harvey because I was listening to Jim Duquette on MLB Network Radio and he talked about how last year when Harvey thought about limiting his innings, maybe not pitching in the postseason, going the Strasburg route, it created a lot of frostiness towards he and his teammates. I know for a fact when he first came up, some of his behaviors as a rookie, his first year, second year ticked a lot of his teammates off. I'm not sure that they like him as a person, but they understand the importance. That's going to be difficult for Harvey. Knowing that you're kind of on an island by yourself that you created, maybe that's contributing a little bit to him trying to find himself or this pressure he's putting on himself. When you put yourself the chips to the center of the table, there's a lot of responsibility with that. Uh, I think they should have sent him down. Uh, I, I hope that if he gets clobbered tomorrow on Memorial Day that they send him down. At this point, Matt Harvey, statistically, is no different than Sean Gilmartin. I know that pisses fans off, and I know the upside <laughs> is different. I'm serious. I mean, this is no, the most – No, I'm, I'm, I'm not arguing with you. That, that was a laughter of support. I believe I agree with you. <laughs> I mean, this is the same nonsense you heard when Jabba Chamberlain was a lousy, mediocre pitcher. Just because he had those great 20-something innings, it doesn't matter today. And you've seen that with Matt Harvey. And uh, I hope that for Mets fans' sake, I hope that I'm wrong. And John Smoltz had some encouraging things to say on the broadcast last night because he compared some of his struggles uh, early in his career to what Harvey's going through. But something is wrong. There's way too much work on this guy for mechanics and what have you, that either it's a cover your butt on the, on the coaching staff for maybe not having him prepared for the season, or there's something way wronger than you and I could even imagine. You know what, Mike, and you touched upon this, and I'll, I'll tell you what, it's, it's something that we did that, that we as fans and writers and everybody else is kind of – it, it, it kind of isn't given the kind of weight in terms of the, the, the broader Matt, Matt Harvey picture, probably because the Mets immediately followed by winning the division series and independent and then going to the World Series. But do not underestimate for a second how much of his teammates are angered by the fact that don't forget the, the mandatory workout last October before they played in the playoffs. Don't forget who didn't show up. Who didn't show up for the workout. You know, I mean, that that was something that bothered Mets fans and, and, and excuse me, bothered uh, the Mets players inordinately. And that's the kind of thing that that you know, when we talk about him not talking in the in the locker room the other day, you know, people think it's well, he, your manager doesn't talk to you. I, I, my life is unaffected when Matt Harvey ever talks to me again. I swear that on, on you know on, on my my family's health that it, it doesn't affect me one way or the other. It does affect his standing in the clubhouse because the last thing in the world you ever want is for an, is for a teammate to be forced to answer for your failures. That's 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 rule one of the clubhouse code. But he's already been a chronic violator of the clubhouse code because you know we for, again we I think we forget and sometimes overlook that this guy blew off a mandatory workout before the playoffs and there was no repercussion. And that's the kind of thing that sticks in the, in, in, in the clubhouse's craw. And I think that was really an indication of who he is. You know, you talk about the 24-1, and 1, I think that's absolutely fair. 
Plus, I forget that when A-Rod became 24-1, and he was also a guy who was the best player in the sport. Um, and, and it established that over the course of a number of years. Uh, Matt Harvey, look, I mean, it would also be wrong to minimize who Matt Harvey has been for the best because, I mean, you know, I was right there with you and everybody else that, you know, in 13, there was, you know, fewer things more enjoyable in sports than watching Matt Harvey start because he had, you know, all his powers, he was healthy, and he was dominant. Um, and can he retain that again? I mean, who knows? If you're a Mets fan, you have to hope so. Um, so, I mean, there's, there's no shame in, in, in wishing that, in wishing and hoping that he, you know, finds a little bit of his old self both on Memorial Day and beyond. But, look, I mean, it, it's not an isolated red flag. I mean, you know, who is a, 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 in their first full year poses for a body issue? You know, unless a guy who's got, I mean, I mean, we could go on. I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to belabor all of his transgressions. I mean, some of it is just being young and in New York. I get that. That's fine. You know, if people were to judge every move I made when I was 23, 24, 25, 26, I wouldn't like it very much because I, I didn't cover myself in glory a lot. I understand that. But look, you know, when you court the fame that New York brings, when you court everything about the, the perks of New York, uh, there's also a flip side where you have to answer to it, you know, and I know that people sometimes now roll their eyes at David Wright because, you know, it just seems like he's this, 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 this perfect, you know, guy that we always put on a pedestal to show what's right. But the fact is that he does generally do things the right way in the same way that Derek Jeter did. And I think what's disappointing for a lot of people with Matt Harvey is that, you know, he claimed from day one that as a Yankee fan, he followed everything that Derek Jeter ever did, every movie he ever made. Well, that's just false because, you know, Jeter never, ever put himself in the kind of positions that Harvey did. You can never, you know, envision Jeter being, you know, anything less than 20 minutes early for a mandatory postseason workout, right? And so, you know, you can start listing the differences from there. So, but there's time for him. He's still young. I mean, there's still plenty of time for him to get this turned around, not only from a physical pitching standpoint, but also from just his place and his makeup in the clubhouse. But, but he does have some work to do, and anybody who wants to minimize that, I think he's just fooling, fooling themselves. Well, what do you got going on uh, coming up? Anything you want listeners to know about? I'm sure you're taking some time for Memorial Day, but listen, tomorrow's a big sports day if you're uh, if you're a writer. You got the uh, the greatest show on earth, Matt Harvey. Uh, That's right. Field, so. <laughs> That's right. Now, yeah, I, I I am taking a breather for the Memorial Day, but uh, look, I mean, one of the great things about the way this this summer is and the way that my schedule is, I mean, in, in, you know, in past years I would have been going to Rio for the Olympics. I'm not doing that this year, which is good not only for my health because those flies yes. aren't going to be getting to me, but also because, uh, you know, it's a, it's going to be a great baseball summer, even if the Yankees kind of keep scuffling. I mean, the Yankees are a terrific story one way or the other, just because of the Yankees. And I really believe that the American League East is going to be one with 87 wins. So, I mean, if you could just keep your head above water until August 1st, you just never know. And, of course, the Mets are going to be, you know, you know every, four every five days they send out just these compelling pitchers. You know, Harvey for different wrong reasons, and even Partolo on that fifth day. I mean, every now and again he'll spin you a gem, but you know, in the coming weeks you're going to see Zach Wheeler again. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a great ball story. Uh, I certainly hope that we see them in the World Series, just because it makes it, it makes for a more interesting uh, thing to write about. And certainly, you know, from from a business standpoint, we sell more papers when our teams are in the World Series than when they're not. Uh, but it's just going to be fun to, 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 to be a part of it and to cover. So it's, uh, it's just another reminder of, uh, you know, how lucky I am that I have, uh, you know, one of the best jobs on earth. Hey, happy Memorial Day. You've been generous on a holiday weekend with your time. Thanks a lot. Let's catch up again, okay, my friend? That sounds good, Mike. Great, really good talking to you. Have a great holiday. And that's Mike Vaccaro, Mike Vaccaro of the New York Post. Some great stuff at Mike Vac on Twitter, so check him out. Uh, interesting take there on 86, on Matt Harvey, on Noah Syndergaard, and what's going on with the Mets, the current Mets, the former Mets.
Hey, let's take a quick break. When we return, let's hear from the voice of the MetsmorizedOnline.com community. I'm going to try to either take questions every week, maybe get somebody on who contributes. want to get the fans' point of view. I know we don't do live call-ins, so this is kind of the podcast or the replay podcast version of live calls. So Chris from MetsmorizedOnline.com will be joining me for a few minutes and uh, giving his take on everything that's going on. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast here. I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check out the show on iTunes, uh, SoundCloud, and, of course, all the time at the Talking Mets link over at MetsmorizedOnline.com. We'll be right back. Did he just kick him out? He threw behind Utley. Did they just kick Syndergaard out? That's the one. That's unbelievable. Adam Hamari is the home plate umpire. He didn't even hit him. I think a warning could be issued, but not you can't toss a guy for that. And now Collins is out. He couldn't care less, but Collins is going to get his money's worth. And Collins, in my opinion, is right. And you know what you're doing, which no one thinks about as an umpire at the time? You just made it worse. Well, they didn't say much. I think I had more to say than they did. Would you say you're extremely upset with their decision-making process tonight? Be fair. Terry, what was your, without some of the words, obviously, that you can't use, what was your argument with the umpire? What was your message that you were trying to? There's no warning. My argument was, you know what, you know, nobody got hit. Um... You know, he made an assumption, which certainly he's allowed to do, as we know. Um, I disagreed with it. I don't think anybody, um, you guys know me better than anybody. I don't know if you can still read my mind, you know, on how I feel about something or what I'm doing. Um, And that was my my argument. And, you know, there was a time, and I, again, I'm not going to sit here and say that Noah threw at him. I'm not going to do that. But there was a time when, in this game, where you had a shot. And, you know, nobody, nothing happened. Ball went to the backstop. I mean, nobody, and so that was that was kind of my argument. Uh, it's just uh, when they got away from you. Was it shocking to you that I was a little shocked, yeah. Um, but knowing our passers with the, the Dodgers, I can see why. He might have thought different, um, but you know it's just a, a pitch they got away from me. Simple as that. So I got for you on that one. Uh, that's a good question, possibly, but I understand it. Um, but overall, I thought we we played a good game. I think a you know a, a loud, energizing environment is uh, you know gets the, gets the best out of you. I think it's fun. We had a lot of. A lot of games in Philadelphia in the playoffs, and crowds were, were into it. Uh, it makes it, you know, kind of gets the adrenaline going a little bit. Uh, it makes you kind of dig down deeper. We're back, Talking Mets podcast here, and uh, we've had a chock full show. We've had Doug Sisk, Mike McCarroll, the New York Post, and Let's hear from the MetsmorizedOnline.com community, and remember that community, uh, Chris the teacher, he's written a few pieces over the, the course of his time there, recently wrote a piece about Matt Harvey, wanted to get him on, get his take, uh, a lot to talk about, and just like I said earlier in the broadcast, you never know what radio brings because we were going to sit here and talk about Matt Harvey, talk about David Wright, uh, and the current Mets and some of the issues facing them, and here we are, we have a whole Noah Syndergaard, Chase Utley controversy, Chris. Thanks for uh, joining us for a couple of minutes. How you doing here on this Memorial Weekend Sunday? Doing great, pal. I really appreciate the chance. Never a dull moment, huh? 
Yeah, well, I said in the open that you can't get mad at Utley. You can't get mad at Syndergaard. And I'm not even really mad at the home plate umpire, rookie umpire, Adam Hammerai. To me, this is just the bureaucracy of baseball at play that's created confusion with the, the home plate collision. It's created confusion with the neighborhood play. It's created confusion with instant replay. Um, I think you got a, got a lot of guys like Joe Torre and Tony LaRusso and Jim Nealon who are great managers, but not sure they're qualified to be on these committees. And you look at other leagues like the NBA who have former referees and have a tight leadership from the top of the commissioner all the way down, and they have issues, but those are outliers. Baseball always has an issue. And to me, that's what you saw last night. I'm not even upset. So uh, I know Mike Vaccaro said that the fans were pretty furious at the game last night. I, you know, Obviously, I, I, I was too. But uh, looking back on this now that you're 24 hours later, to me it's just a symptom of, uh, of a bigger problem at Major League Baseball. I think that's a great point. I think that the most important voices that you need to listen to sadly aren't the fans, but when you hear the former players talking about how much of a mess that it's become, those are the most authentic voices that you can get on a topic like this. And think about it. It could get worse. They're thinking of messing with the strike zone. I don't know if you saw the Jason Stark article, but they're looking to change the strike zone. Like, I think everything's okay. Do we have to mess around with the strike zone again? I agree. Just let them play. So we're at Memorial Day weekend, and one of the big topics is Matt Harvey. And you had a lot to say in your piece earlier this week. You know, I, I said, and, and I've said it consistently, after that, that game on, uh, against Washington, I believe it was on Tuesday, I would have sent them down. There's been some talk from Jim Duquette and guys uh, on MLB Network Radio that are in the know that there's a bit of a 24-1 situation where the, the team really – they're not happy with Harvey. They haven't been happy with Harvey for a while because he's more of a me guy that could be playing into him, putting a little bit more pressure on himself and obviously going out there and, and maybe not feeling the support that he should feel. Um, you had a lot to say. You're, you know, you're kind of in the same camp as I. I know there's been a lot of fans that are trying to hey, support Matt, and they certainly met the need Matt Harvey, but this cannot become like what A-Rod was for the Yankees. It can't become every week. How do we fix Matt Harvey? Because the Mets could still win without Matt Harvey. They need Matt Harvey because it makes things more difficult. They could win without Matt Harvey. And right now, to me, he is a glorified fifth starter. Forget the name. He's no different than Sean Gilmartin right now until he proves otherwise. You're right. And, uh, again, you have to look at it from the athlete's perspective, not only his but his teammates. He's continuing to alienate his teammates. This is a guy who went out and asked for the ball, did not deliver, and then left the teammates holding the bag in the postgame, which a lot of people felt wasn't a big deal. But trust me, uh, when you're in that locker room, it definitely is. Um, when somebody doesn't deliver like that, then they really what could have been a watershed moment, he could have said, hey, I'm not right. I have to make some changes. What can I do to get myself right? Uh, and basically volunteered to go down. That would have really changed the perception of him and his teammates' minds. That would have really stopped that uh, selfish narrative that we have going out throughout all the newspapers and show the guys, hey, I'm, I'm good for what's good for the team. Because not only when he starts tomorrow against the White Sox, he is taking the ball away from somebody else that could start and maybe give the team a better chance to win. Now with Noah going out last night, throwing only a, you know basically a glorified side session, they really could reshuffle the rotation and skip him tomorrow if they wanted to still. Absolutely, and to me, if Harvey, and this was my point, and I've listened to Steve Phillips and Todd Hollinsworth on MLB Network Radio, and they disagree. I mean, uh, 
they say, you know, you got to fix Harvey. It's too important to the Mets. You got to fix him at the big league level. Sending him down could destroy his confidence. You can't use every five days as a simulated game. I don't think you. I mean, somebody, even in between starts, somebody standing on the side uh, side session or in the batting cage or uh, you know in a in a secret part of City Field, having them just stand there while he works on his mechanics, that's not going to help. Go down to Vegas. It's okay if you're facing Reno or some of these teams, even if it's for ten days. Do that, and I'm not a proponent of him going on the DL and then going down to Port St. Lucie and hanging out in obscurity. Yeah, you could do simulated games down there, but I think he needs the juice of a regular game of the fans. You know, work it out like everyone else did. Like Cliff Lee got sent down, Roy Halladay got sent down. We know about Bobby Jones and and guys like that. Steve Traxel, it's, he's not above it. And I'll tell you, if he gets clocked tomorrow against the Lion Sox, it'll be very interesting where this goes. And I, and I I think it would be high time to send him down. I, I mean, I'm I'm pretty blown away that he's getting the start tomorrow again after going out there again and saying, no, I want the ball, give me another shot. I mean, this hasn't been the first time that he said, give me the ball, I got it, and it didn't work out. I mean, we all remember the ninth inning of Game 5 when inexplicably he slept in for the ninth inning and then even more inexplicably letting the leadoff man on, uh, and then it was basically history from there. But you you send him to Vegas, he can hear a different voice in a different area, it would be helpful for him to clear his head. I'd give him a month down there, and then he comes back and he's a shot in the arm in July. Hey, guys, I'm back. I'm right. Don't worry. I got this now. Uh, I apologize about everything that happened in the past. And really, I think that could go not only a long run in the pitching results, but also in the clubhouse, which is which he has to mend some fences in there. You've also been, uh, at least you and I, when we've talked uh, over at mesmerizedonline.com, you've talked about your concerns with David Wright. You know, now he has a neck injury, and, and you know, James Loney's on board now, so the Mets have a little bit of offense coming in over at first base that should help. I've said a couple of things. I like David. He's played better than I expected, at least showed more power, but he's not a consistent player. Defensively, he's poor. The metrics point that out. The eye test points that out. Again, he had to take yesterday off because of a, a, a neck injury, which may or may not be, depending on what these tests the doctors uh, put, uh, be related to stenosis. I cannot see him fulfilling this contract, and this has almost become one of those situations where every day at, uh, you know, if it's a 7 o'clock game at 5 p.m., you're holding your breath and saying, well, the Mets lineup isn't out yet, is right in it, and the downgrade from Wright to Campbell or to Ty Kelly right now, Matt, you know, Matt Reynolds, uh, is a big is a big issue. Uh, you said you have a lot of experience with this whole stenosis situation. Give the listeners, give me an idea. You know what is right facing, and give give them what your thoughts have been because you've been pretty critical and concerned about right in this situation. Well, I was uh, diagnosed with uh, lumbar spinal stenosis, the same uh, situation that the right has after my freshman year of college playing uh, Division One college football, and I would always equate it with my coaches every day. You come in, and everybody says, oh, he comes three, four hours early to the ballpark. But what is he really doing? Well, I'll tell you, what he's doing is a lot of stretching, a lot of strengthening exercises. Um, And I always would just equate it to you basically go to the ballpark every day, and you're handed a master lock. And every day you have to unlock it without knowing the combination. Some days you get lucky, and a lot of days you don't. And that back is going to stay locked up. Um, In a situation like last night with the neck, uh, this is very concerning. Um, Not to get too technical, but 
there's three different sections of the spine. His right now affected is the lumbar spine. If this spinal stenosis is also affecting his upper spine, um, that is going to be a whole different ballgame because then it changes everything. Um, he's going to be more – it's going to take a lot longer for him to get loose. It's going to take – you're going to be very prone to a pinched nerve in the neck when you make a sudden movement to the left or – if you are even on the bench celebrating and stand up to celebrate a walk-off, you're going to be prone to those sudden movements causing your back to go out. And if you get into a situation where anybody with stenosis will tell you where your back is out, you're, you're, off, your, you're off your feet for five days uh, before you can even stand up. And the torque in his swing, as we all know through the years, is also a problem because he has so much lower body torque and all of that is going to fall onto his lumbar spine. You said it earlier. You're right. He's not fulfilling this contract. There's no way in heck that he's fulfilling this contract. Um, best case scenario for everybody, he wins a World Series this year or next year, and he rides off into the sunset as a champion, and, and they defer the rest of that money. And I just don't think – I mean, look, I, I think he's a, a great guy. I like – look, he's played better. I Once I heard spinal stenosis – I said, oh, this is not good. Now, think about this, though, Chris, and you having suffered from the from the ailment, you didn't see as much of these issues when he came back late August because he spent May, June, the all of July rehabbing. This is a guy that maybe could give you six, seven, eight weeks of spurts. I don't know if you can get those spurts by him just resting a day here, day there, 15-day DL. Like This is a guy that may only be able to give you six, seven, eight weeks, and if you saw as he got deeper into the postseason, his performance tailed off both offensively and defensively, this is the problem. I don't think you could get very long periods, and is the occasional pop of a home run worth it? Well, right now, yeah, because of the downgrade at the position, but uh, I just don't see how this is. This is going to be a problem. It's going to become a bigger problem, and it's not because of lack of effort. It's because physically, he can't do it. Now, do you want to walk away from that money? I understand him not wanting to, but at some point, you could cripple yourself, I'm not, I'm not mistaken, by really pushing this too hard, correct? Oh, very much correct. I mean, look, he's waking up in pain every single day. Uh, every single day, he's waking up hurt. And you mentioned the tail off of the uh, postseason last year, and he was okay coming back in August. Well, I know it's a cliche thing, but a lot of it really does have to do with the weather. Uh, when it's cold out there, it takes a lot more to get. It takes a lot more to unlock that spine. Uh, when it's warm and you're loose, um, it's a lot easier to unlock the spine. So I think as the weather gets warmer, I think they overused him in April. I think that he was on pace for 120 games or so. I think that was that was a big mistake. A lot of it had to do with a lack of depth at the position. I think they could have started Flores there a couple of times to spell him. Uh, but as the weather gets warmer, it's going to be easier for him to get loose for sure. Uh, it's just a question if really the damage has already been done. What you might see now, besides this neck, um, you're going to start to see some hip issues. He's going to have to start to see some foot issues where he's not feeling all the all of his toes, so he can't get the timing right on his swing. Um, it, it's degenerative. It's not. It's going to be a little worse every day. It's just a question of he can perform with it. And if you think about it, with James Loney at first and Flores, if he can, I don't really particularly care 100% for Flores at third. His footwork stinks sometimes, but you know he's no worse than right. That's not a huge downgrade from right or hurt right in Campbell. I understand right's going to give you something different because of his upside, and there's going to be flashes. 
To me, that's not a bit, that's not a big downgrade. I like the Loney move. I don't know what your thoughts are, um, and at least for the temporary situation, so they could see where they're at and what due to situation, which is also as someone a bad back, the due to situation is not going to be long term a, a good thing either. Um, and see what they can get at the deadline because you you want to be able to not overpay now. So I could live with Flores Loney occasionally right if he has to take a 15-day DL and then see what goes on July 31st because they'll be fine until July 31st, I think, with that combo. Well, uh, one thing to think about with Duda as well, and this is, again, getting kind of technical, but Mets made a strength coach move two years ago and about a year and a half ago bringing in Mike Barwis. And uh, Mike Barwis' program has a lot of high-intensity, high-impact training and a lot of axial lower spinal loading. So now we see a guy like Duda uh, with a back injury now. We see Wright. We see Cabrera with a sore back. Uh, I think that that move letting go a guy like Jim Malone, who is, uh, was their former strength coach. I know this is a little industry insider, but um, the core injuries were a lot less uh, under a guy like that because his program lends itself to more stretching than um, – so much explosiveness that Barwis uses. Um, I like the Loney move for sure. He's a veteran presence. He's got the thing that is good with him is the lack of strikeouts, and that's really the biggest problem with Wright. I mean, you cannot have your second hitter striking out once every three, sometimes even less times up at the plate. These unproductive outs are what really have put the Mets in the position that they're in right now, living and dying by the by the long ball. Uh, great point. So what do you got going on for Memorial Day? What are you, what is what are the what are the uh the community? What are you guys looking for? Give me an idea as we wrap up here. What um the Mets you and the other members of MetsMarizeOnline.com are looking for over the next couple of days into the week and uh and obviously there's going to be a lot of Syndergaard stuff, but to wrap up, give me an idea what you're looking at. A lot of Syndergaard stuff, going to see how they play that. A lot of eyes on Harvey. Uh, and on a personal note, uh, we have a big piece breaking uh, tomorrow morning that is going to talk about a hometown hero, uh, a veteran, an, a war veteran that I played with uh, in college that was wounded uh, over in Afghanistan during the Mets stretch run last year, earned a Purple Heart, uh, earned a Bronze Star, and we got to bring him back out to Shea, where he, uh, back at the city field, where he wanted to be last year, the first week of September. So we got a piece breaking on that tomorrow that I think is going to really not leave a dry eye in the house. Hey, listen, that's what Memorial Day is about. I'm glad you brought that up. I said that in the opening. Uh, those guys are the reason why you and I could talk about frivolity like uh, rights back and uh, Harvey stupidity. So good, uh, good way to end the note. Chris, thanks a lot. Have a great Memorial Day. Have a hamburger on me, all right? And uh, good stuff. Let's, uh, let's do it again, all right? Thank you so much for the opportunity, Mike. Love the podcast. You're doing a great job. All right, that's Chris from MetsmorizedOnline.com. Chris, the teacher. Uh, let's take a quick break. Final thoughts. We'll be right back. Hey, Mets fans. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. If you're looking for the best unbiased and independent coverage of the New York Mets, then look no further than MetsmorizedOnline.com. 
Metsmerized Online is the go-to place for comprehensive Mets coverage, including exclusive interviews, daily original articles, great weekly features, in-depth analysis, minor league reports, game-by-game breakdowns, and so much more. Find out why thousands of fans turn to Metsmerized Online every day to get the latest news and opinions about the Mets. Coming from an impressive staff of the most passionate fans and skilled writers ever assembled all in one place. Check it out for yourselves, Mets fans. Go to MetsmerizedOnline.com right now. That's Mets, M-E-R-I-Z-E-D, Online.com, and get Metsmerized today. We're back. Mike Silva. Hey, I want to thank everybody here, but before I get to the the final thank yous. Hey, I want to thank Ed Lucas at Seeing Home Book. He wrote a nice piece at NJ.com going through all the different podcasts this summer for baseball and sports in general that you should be listening to. And he put the Talking Mets podcast, this humble podcast, right up there as one of the three best Mets podcasts out there. So check out uh, Ed Lucas at NJ.com at Seeing Home Book is his Twitter handle. Thank you, Ed, for some really kind words. Hey, I want to thank everybody. I want to thank everybody for listening. Have a great Memorial Day. For sure, um, be safe out there. Remember those who are serving our country. Have a hamburger, and uh, you know, hopefully we, we watch some good Mets baseball, some great pitching matchups, Clinton Kershaw facing Bartolo Colon. Of course, you have uh, Matt Harvey as well and, and that drama that's going to be unfolding tomorrow on Memorial Day against the Chicago White Sox. Of course, I want to thank Doug Sisk. I want to thank Mike Vaccaro, the New York Post, at Mike Vac is his handle. And, of course, I want to thank Chris from MetsmerizedOnline.com. Check out the show on Talking Mets, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, and check me out on at MikeSilverMedia on Twitter. Hey, have a great weekend. Have a great rest of your Memorial Day. See you guys next week. Peace.